This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Moore's Law gets a hearing. And Petaflop Club ups its membership. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening in again to This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell, joined again by my podcast partner, Michael Feldman, editor at top500.org. How's it going, Michael? Very well, Addison. How's it going there? Doing fine, thanks. Michael, we still have a little bit to wrap up from ISC. It was a big conference, as we were talking about, with a lot of additional content. And one of the topics that I, panels that I think was really interesting that generated a lot of conversation even after the event was a panel discussion on uh, basically scalability after the end of Moore's Law, which interestingly enough, included someone from Intel on the uh, on the panel, uh, but also a few other speakers who presented some other options. Yeah, that was a, a well-attended conference. I was there. Uh, it was a full room, and uh, it was called, right, Scaling Beyond the End of Moore's Law, presumably to talk about what comes after Moore's Law, which is supposed to sort of run out of steam sometime in the early 2020s. Nobody has an exact date, but... Uh, people see the problems ahead. And it, it is a big topic in our community and in computing in general. And there was a, a good deal of talk about it at the conference, including this, uh, this well-attended session. Um, and th to me, what was very interesting was that Josh Fryman from Intel was one of the speakers. And you know, Intel has been all about Moore's Law. Now, he was talking about CMOS and you know, perhaps heroic CMOS and what can be done to extend digital processing. Right. Um, he started out actually sort of redefining Moore's Law in a, in a way I've never really heard about it before. He basically called it a business statement. And remember, this is from Intel's point of view. So in, in a sense, that is sort of correct now. Originally, it, it didn't seem to be a business statement. It was sort of a technology observation of what was occurring in in lithography over the, the early years and the later years of, of uh uh, producing semiconductors, but uh, the fact that it became a business statement to Intel, I think is significant. But in this context, it's a little bit odd to talk about it that way, because here we're talking about what comes after this business or this statement. Um, so it was interesting that, that he started out that way. But uh, you're right. He, he talked mainly about how we can extend CMOS technology with some of the things Intel has tried, including near threshold voltage and things like more granular scaling of the power on the chip and things like that that have been done, but nothing nothing sort of revolutionary that's really going to get us beyond the Moore's Law uh, era or, or anywhere into, you know, anywhere past the next decade to extend CMOS. Yeah, it's kind of a funny speech. First of all, talking about this as a business statement rather than a technology projection. In some case, in some way, that spin is a little worse, right? I mean, right. what you're telling me is that your business proposition is is now shot. I I don't think that's really it. I think the original uh, original statement is really an observation, as you were saying, about what's going on. It became an internal goal for Intel of how to pursue their technological advancement. Now, that's as may be really getting to uh, some of these other technologies, as you pointed out, these aren't really revolutionary. They're, they're things that have been tried. They, they're certainly not things that, that answer the question of scaling beyond the end of Moore's law. Uh, there's not some big 
uh, hero savior there in uh, in digital processors, which brings us to the next speaker, Carl Heinz Meyer, uh, who was uh, talking about neuromorphic computing. Right. He went through a few examples of what's known as neuromorphic computing, which is basically modeling a, a sort of a conventional or using conventional computer technology to model a, a neural network. And this is all done with regular old CMOS, including things like ARM processors. So he went through this uh, this project called Spinnaker, which is uh, out of the University of Manchester, that does model a, a certain size neural network and, and processes uh, things on a, on a very in a very different way than you would on a conventional sort of on Newman architecture, but it's not it's not different in the sense that it's using different technology or that it gets you where Moore's law wouldn't get you. It's just a different software framework that that does things differently. Right. I mean, it's very topical to be looking at these uh, these neuromorphic or, or you know, deep neural networks, any anything like that, as especially as it related to the the themes for the show around machine learning, artificial intelligence. We saw a lot of that, but what we're really looking at here is a different architecture based on the same technology. That's not like that's a, a complete departure from this digital age of computing and some new computational component here, right? Uh, it's 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 not that kind of revolution. So uh, interesting, but again, not really answering the question of scaling beyond the end of Moore's law. So let's get to the third one then, which was quantum computing. Right, quantum computing a little different uh, again than neuromorphic computing. It's using uh, sort of a different fundamental uh, uh, aspect of 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 this, in that it uses qubits instead of digital bits. Um, right. This is different. This is not digital. This is moving beyond von Neumann computing. Right, and the and the materials here are a little more exotic than than CMOS. I mean, there's different things being proposed. There is no quantum general purpose quantum computer today, to, despite what what uh, companies like D-Wave are doing. This they're talking about things like isolating quantum uh, qubits and things like ions and and sort of all sorts of exotic metals and uh, materials. But at the at the fundamental level, it it is a technology. It's not really a path. They didn't talk about, you know, and this year we'll have, you know, a 20 qubit computer and in the next five years we'll have a 40 qubit computer and we'll just progress from there and then that'll replace everything we have now. It wasn't presented that way, nor have I ever heard it presented that way. It's just a different technology. They're using uh, a, a different set of uh, frameworks to do what amounts to a different set of computing, not really replacing traditional computing as we know it today, at least that's never been uh, sort of cast that way. So uh, in a way, this is sort of tangential to the whole Moore's Law discussion and the whole discussion of computing in general, since it's sort of another variant on computing that uh, doesn't really replace what we're doing with anything that, that can take it over completely. Right. I mean, it, it is a, a different sort of non-CMOS technology that you're talking about going forward, but it's not general purpose enough. So in terms of the broad aspects of HPC and how we're going to manage scalability, uh, really nothing in this panel got to that, nor was there any discussion of you know, other types of alternate uh, alternate processing technologies that have been theorized, whether you're talking about something like DNA molecular computers or some of the laser computers, buckyballs. And we've seen right. 
all kinds of weird stuff out there, but right. none of that is really far enough along, I guess, to have made a lot of waves in the panel. So, you know, the, my, my problem with it is for being a panel on scaling beyond the end of Moore's law, I don't think we really talked about scaling beyond the end of Moore's law, other than maybe we feel a little better from putting some people up there to talk about some ideas. Yeah. I mean, it, it did leave me with a somewhat empty feeling, although I've got to say that Josh Fryman was optimistic that we would find something. I mean, he's he's been in this industry a while, even at Intel, and he sees that there are solutions that come about in sort of unexpected ways. So, I mean, I think his approach uh, was basically, let's keep CMOSs going as long as possible and keep working on these other things, which he didn't discuss. I mean, he didn't talk about buckyballs or graphene or spintronics or any of these things, but he uh, he is optimistic that we will find something. He doesn't think this is going to be the end of this sort of pathway to to better and better computing. Um, but he just didn't have anything to offer there. Or if he, right. if Intel did have something, they certainly weren't going to talk about it at this particular conference. But well, uh, I mean that I agree with. If, if this points to anything, it's that in the near term, what we're really looking at is what kind of different architectures are best suited to particular types of problems. I, we're, we're looking at everything with uh, with these many core chips, with GPUs and Knight's Landing. Um, Data Vortex got some very nice coverage from Thomas Sterling in the closing keynote presentation about their architecture and how it moves data across the system in uh, new and interesting ways for certain types of applications that are sparsely populated linear algebra, or the GUPS benchmark, things like that, that uh, areas where where uh, that can excel, FFTs. But um, aside from those different architectural approaches, uh, really nothing else there. That's probably our path, at, at least in the intermediate term, if not the long term. Um, now, one thing that's related to that we've talked about is, is this divergence between the top and bottom of the top 500 list. And we alluded to that at the uh, back a couple weeks ago in our top 500 uh, coverage at ISC, the one we did live from the conference. Um, and related to that is this idea of how many different systems are now, Michael, in, in what you like to refer to as the petaflop club. And that's actually been growing at a pretty healthy rate. Yeah, that actually has. That uh, I don't know if it's been growing at the rate it did when it started, but actually it's, it's a nice sort of... Uh, asymptote curve it's going up from 2008 which is when roadrunner came came into a uh, into being until now and uh, at this point we've got very close to 100 petaflop systems on the list that's almost a fifth of the list and it's over the past two years it's actually grown rather fast because it was about 50 just a couple of years ago so there are more and more of these petaflop systems and that doesn't appear to be slowing down that actually uh, appears to be speeding up. And I think there's a lot of things to attribute to that. But basically, uh, they've become becoming cheaper and there's more uh, hardware fundamental, there are hardware chips that are actually allowing this to happen at a, at a much uh, more attractive price point. So what I noticed when I started looking at this is that there's uh, more commercial systems in the petaflop range uh, on that list, as well as a lot more academic systems uh, at, at universities. I think I counted... Uh, 11 of those 95 petaflop systems are now uh, at universities, and not all of them are associated with these big supercomputing centers. Some of them are just regular old universities. And you know, back when we did the Solve report with the United States Council on Competitiveness, one thing that uh, commercial end users pointed out was that they look to the national labs to set the pace for these new levels of scalability, and then commercial councils start 
start to uh, adopt them as the scalability gets proven out. And, and you're right, on the supply side, there's been a lot going on there also. You get Knight's Landing out there, you get the new generations of GPUs. You can put up a petaflop in a single cabinet if you want. Uh, uh, and, you know, if you want to power it, if you've got an application for it. So, you know, maybe a petaflop isn't even as much as it used to be, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and we should see that continue to grow. Yeah. Even at the show, we saw two announcements for two new petaflop systems, one from Cray. Now it's going to be a four, 5.4 petaflop system that's going to go into Kyoto University. And SGI had another system that was uh, 1.9 petaflops going into University of Tokyo. These these two happened to be in Japan, but actually, uh, curiously, a lot of the uh, a lot of the academic petascale systems are actually from Japanese universities. They're they're pretty popular. The, I think the the most powerful one on the list now is from Nagoya University. It's a 2.9 petaflop system, but like I said, this it's going to have some company uh, right now. It's going to be even larger, but. Yeah, more and more of these systems, I think, like you said, as these more powerful uh, chips, especially Knight's Landing and the the P100 GPU we talked about from NVIDIA uh, go into production, we're going to see a lot more of these uh, petaflop systems at at the uh, university level and at more commercial level. And I, I think there are probably also a lot of commercial systems that will be showing up at a pet. Well, not showing up at a petaflop. There'll be a petaflop, but they might not be uh, running Linpack or appearing on the top 500 list. Not every company wants to advertise their supercomputing prowess that way. Yeah, I mean that's definitely true. I mean, I'm I'm guessing or I'm I'm fairly certain that there's already well over 100 petascale systems now, and there's just uh, a hand a dozen or two dozen or three dozen are just not being uh, being promoted or publicized. I mean, the ones that we did see on the list. A lot of them were in oil and gas. They tend to be a little less uh, conservative about telling what technology they're using. So there was, I think there was four of these petaflop systems. One was Total, Total which was the biggest one at five petaflops. And then there was uh, three or three others, one from Petroleum Geoservices, and then a company called Eni, and then one at Sauda, Saudi Aramco, which is the smallest petaflop system. But yeah, oil and gas has been uh, pretty vocal about adding these systems and they've been using them at a pretty good clip and it doesn't hurt that they tend to be some of the uh, richest corporations in the world so they can afford uh, somewhat more expensive hpc systems oh. than uh you know like a small small or medium-sized manufacturer could price of oil is down right now so i don't know how many of them you'll get in the immediate term though that does tend to depress the spending a little bit not entirely yeah. but but does put a damper on oil and gas. Then there are all the hyperscale companies out there, by the way, and we we don't really see those as top 500 types of systems. But if, certainly from a magnitude of infrastructure standpoint, uh, you know, you'd get several systems up there that that would count if if you thought of it as a single supercomputer. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Depending on how they slice the uh, the clusters or the data center, some of them would be you know well into the multi petaflop range. But yeah, typically they don't run Linpack on that, and typically they don't. They don't care to because those aren't the type of workloads that are they're usually being run on those hyperscale uh, systems. Well, 95 now. We'll see how many it is in November, Michael. I'm sure we'll be there then. And uh, in the meantime, that kind of wraps up all of our ISC coverage. And we'll be getting back to regular old news stories in the intervening months, although the fall is always busy for us, isn't it? Yes, indeed it is. <laughs> all right, Michael. Thanks a lot for another podcast, and thanks for you to tuning in. This has been This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. 
For more information, visit intersect360.com.